In today's talk, we'll take another bird's eye view at Buddhism, but today we'll look at it from the perspective of the fruits and benefits which we will receive from our practice of Dhamma. In the circle of Buddhists, we have a general principle that there are three main perspectives to take on things. First of all, there is the Dhamma to be learned, to study. Second is the Dhamma that we must practice. And third is the Dhamma which we realize, the Dhamma which are the fruits of our practice. Or the, the Pali words for this, which are familiar for some of you, are Pariyati Dhamma, the Dhamma to be learned, Patibhati Dhamma, the Dhamma to be practiced, and Patiweta Dhamma, the Dhamma to be penetrated and realized. In the little time that we have today, in this last lecture, we'd like to take a bird's eye view at the fruits to be received from practice. And we'll do so in two aspects. The fruits received while living in the world and the fruits which are the nature of being freed or getting freed of this world. There are many dhammas in Buddhism, but in general they can be summarized within the, the basic principles of the Four Noble Truths or dependent origination. In fact, these two are the same thing. If we speak more briefly, we call it the Four Noble Truths. But when we speak in greater detail, then it goes by the name of dependent origination, although the subject is basically the same. These are the Dhammas to be learned. As for the Dhammas to be practiced, there are also very many. However, here, we want to point to the, the basic practice of anapanasati, mindfulness with breathing in and out. If we practiced anapanasati correctly and fully, then it will include all the other dhammas that need to be practiced, the Noble Eightfold Path, the three trainings, and so on. So this is the Dhamma that we need to train in, the Dhamma that needs to be practiced and developed. Then for the, the fruits of practice, we can distinguish two aspects to it. First of all is the the coolness and peacefulness 
which the one who practices um, experiences and realizes. And then on the other hand is the benefits which that practitioner will will develop for the sake of others. For more clarity in our understanding of things, it's helpful to distinguish four levels to things. These four levels are that of kama or sensuality, rupa, materiality, arupa, non-materiality, and nirota, quenching, cessation. Whether we're examining practice or the fruits of practice to be able to make this distinction of these four levels, sensuality, materiality, non-materiality, and quenching, cessation, this will be very useful. Amongst these four things, the first three are our problems, the things that we have attached to and turned into trouble. These three then are the things that we must study, understand, and let go of in order to solve our problems. The fourth, however, nirota, or quenching, is the end of our problems. So it's fundamentally different than the first three. The first three are the bases of our problems, whereas the final one is the end of our problems. These four things were laid down or proclaimed by some human beings with, of great intelligence and wisdom. They were previous to the Buddha, but nonetheless they obviously had good understanding of, of things. <clears throat> the first three matters are concerning things in the world or being in the world, whereas the fourth is about being above and beyond the world. And all four of these are natural, whether in the world or beyond the world, they are totally natural. The first three of them, if, if we set aside Dhamma for a moment, and just look at them in an ordinary way, can be understood as natural levels of the human mind. These are, the human mind can be on these three levels. So we can see the kind of succession from level to level of sensuality, materiality, and non-materiality. The first of them is kama, sensuality, or sexuality. This is a matter of reproduction so that the species won't die out. This is something that nature has arranged 
in all living things in order to maintain the species. The sexuality or the is or the kama is used to induce or trick or deceive or force us into reproduction. The act of sex or the reproductive act itself is difficult, awkward, rather silly, and not much fun in itself. However, the sexuality, the kama of it, is very delicious, enticing, and fun for people. So this, these feelings of sexuality are used by nature to trick us or force us into reproducing. We wouldn't bother, nobody would bother reproducing if there weren't these strong sexual feelings to get us to do so. So this is something nature has put into all living things. All living things, especially animals, have reproductive organs and then they have sexual feelings to trick them into using their reproductive organs. This is something nature has arranged. However, excuse me, although there have been people who have thought that sex was the highest thing, there have been those who have looked carefully, honestly, and seen that if all we do is have sex, we won't really get anywhere. And so they've looked beyond sex. The next level then is that of pure materiality, just purely material things, the body on its own, or the material things and possessions which aren't caught up in or associated with sex, with sensuality. This is the level of rupa, of materiality. These are things that need to be dealt with properly, to be ordered and maintained in a convenient, untroublesome way. And then there comes a certain kind of satisfaction and contentment with the material things, whether our own body or possessions and so on. This is the second level. But then there are those who have seen that there's more than just materiality and they've looked further beyond it to what we can call non-materiality or arupa. When we have seen that possessions, money, wealth, and so on have their problems and hassles, or when we just see that them as they are, then we see that there's something further. And then one looks to the level of non-materiality or the formless level of things like fame, honor, beauty, and other non-material qualities, or we could say almost abstract things. 
these in fact are a higher level of of pleasure and satisfaction they provide a more lofty kind of joy and contentment than the material level and so then some looking beyond the material turn their attention to the non-material things like fame honor justice and so on but then a fourth group of people took a good look and recognized that these first three things or levels are annoying disturbing and so they looked beyond it to something higher something where one is free of beyond independent of the first three things something where there is no annoyance no disturbance this is called nirota or quenching this is the highest level whether or not these four levels are true is something for you to investigate for yourselves but this is a way of viewing things which is very ancient and which has be, been made a lot of use has been made of it since people first realized this this principle so if you wish you can use it in order to understand your own understanding your own practice and the realizations and fruits of of that practice you can all see quite readily that young people young men and women start off on the level of sex of sexuality this is where their minds are traveling around and wandering most of the time very much in the sensual sexual level but then after a while they they look further to the material level to wealth possessions and material things like this and they become more and more concerned with material things in a non-sensual way and then after a while they look further and there's start to be more and more interested in things like one's honor one's reputation and other non-material or formless things like that but then finally one goes even further one sees that all of these these first three are just worldly things and they're disturbing they can be a hassle and so one stops one stops the dis- the disturbing and the hassling and then there is peace there is freedom this is the level of quenching or nirota in buddhism we we call it being above the world logutara being above beyond the world if you prefer you can call it living with god but the meaning 
it's not the what we call it so much, but the meaning that when one is beyond sensuality and sex, beyond materiality, beyond even immateriality, when no, one no longer depends on and is no longer seeking pleasure from these first three levels, then that is in Buddhism called beyond the world or Logutara. This is where there's no more hassles, where there's peace and freedom. Let's look at the pleasure or satisfaction that comes from these. The first level of sex <clears throat> and sensuality gives a kind of pleasure and satisfaction which all of you <clears throat> already know about, and so we need not explain it. Just think for a moment, though, of the kind of pleasure that comes from sex. And in doing so, don't forget that it bites that this, that the satisfaction of sexuality bites its owner. Then there's the level of materiality, <clears throat> the body and material things, which is unconnected with sex. This bites less than the sexuality. It bites its owner a little less. There's a more refined kind of satisfaction in pleasure with material things. And then the immaterial level bites less still. There's a more refined, a calmer kind of pleasure and joy with immaterial things. But still it bites. These first three levels all will bite although successively less so. But it's the fourth level, the, the level that's beyond the world, the transcendent level of nirota, of quenching. This is the level where there's no biting, where the mind is free of sexuality, materiality, and non-materiality. And so there's no biting. This is where there is peace and freedom. In life there are these, in human life there are these four natural levels. The first three will bite, although successively less so. But it's only the fourth level where there's no biting at all. The first three levels of life the sexual, the material, and the non-material are all levels in which there is hunger. These first three levels are the objects or basis of hunger. Wanting to get, wanting to have, wanting to keep, this is what we mean by hunger. But on the fourth level there's no more hunger. It's the level that is free of hunger. There's no more wanting to have or to get or to keep or any of that. So we can, we can distinguish two kinds of life. There is the life of hunger, this ordinary worldly life where we're still caught up in the world, whether on the sexual, material, or non-material levels. 
and there's always hunger. And then there's the level that is beyond the world, above it, the level where there is no hunger at all. Naturally, life comes in these two forms, the hungry life and the non-hungry life. In the life of hunger, one's existing all the time with hunger. And when there's hunger, we must find something to satisfy that hunger. And then we must consume, we must eat that thing. When we compare life to hunger, it's in this way. There are all the difficulties and hassles of living the life of hunger under the power of hunger. But when there's no hunger, then we don't have to search for things to satisfy them, and we don't have to go through the difficult and messy business of consuming them. When the life of no hunger can just be peaceful. So which of the two is better? Which is more worthwhile, the life of hunger, of constantly struggling and fighting over the things to satisfy our hunger, or the life of non-hunger. Now some of you might be wondering, well, if there weren't any, isn't any hunger, then how would we live? That will come to in a little bit. The question to look at now is, which is more worthwhile, which is more worthy of human life? The life of constant hunger and always struggling according to that hunger, or the life of no hunger, not having to struggle. Which of these is more worthwhile? To phrase the question more narrowly, we can ask, between the life of hunger where we must be eating all the time and the life of non-hunger where we don't have to eat at all, which is better? The life, if we go into this a bit more deeply, it's the life where there is ego, the life of self the life where there is the egoistic concepts of me and mine. This is the life of hunger, the life when there is ego, self, me, mine, then there will be constant hunger. All the searching and struggling and fighting of that life of hunger. But when there's no self, when there's no egoistic concepts in the mind, when the mind is free of the illusions of self, I, mine, then things are much different. There's just the natural life, where there's the body and mind functioning naturally, responding to circumstances without any ego. This, this is a totally different life, a life where there isn't any hunger. When there's ego, there's constant hunger and 
constantly we act according to the power of that hunger. But when there's the life without ego, then there's no hunger. And one just acts in terms of one's duty, the responsibilities of life. One sees what needs to be done and doesn't. There's just the doing without a doer. In the way that we ask you to practice walking here as walking without a walker. Let it be a natural function of the body and mind without adding any of the egoistic concepts to it. All of life can be that way, doing without a doer. That then is the life of non-hunger. When there is ignorance, there will be attachment. We grasp at things as being me and mine due to the power of that ignorance. And then there is self, and there are all the defilements that make life heavy and painful. That's the life of hunger. The life of self, the life of me and mine, is the life of endless hunger. But when there's no more ignorance, when there's no more of this grasping at things as me and mine, when there are, the defilements are cool, then it's the life of freedom, the life of peace. Because one is no longer hungry, one doesn't have to live according to the self, according to its demands. One is, is free of that. And so then life is cool. Life is a coolness and a peacefulness when, and this is the life of non-hunger. If you are successful in your Dhamma practice, especially in your practice of Anapanasati, then this will lead to the life of non-hunger. This will lead to seeing anatta, seeing that everything is not self. When one sees anatta clearly in everything one does, then there's no self to make us hungry. The activities of body and mind are recognized as not self, and so they aren't turned into problems. When there's everything is seen as not self, then life is non-hunger. What such a life might be like is well worth your consideration. We hope that you'll take a good look at it. Now some people look at a life without self as being a waste, as being nothing, as being bankrupt. If they want to look at it that way, they're free to. And then they can go on living the life of hunger, the life of being bit, the life of heaviness and constant competition and struggle. If one wants to have the life of self, one is free to. It's one, one's own choice. But the life that is free of self, beyond self, 
That is a life where there's no more hunger, there's no more biting, no more heaviness. It's the life that is free. It's the life of simply doing one's duty. When there's no self left, all that remains is dhamma, is duty. One just does what needs to be done without any hunger, without any struggling, fighting, without any competition, and all that. Now, something that creates a lot of difficulty in this matter is that in each of us, deep down, there is the instinct of self. In all living things, there is some instinct of self as the basis of life. And so when we are born, we have this instinct of self. <clears throat> and then as we, we grow and have more and more interaction with the world, then due to the power of ignorance, this instinct of self develops more and more into ego. However, it is possible to live without self. It is possible to be free of that instinct of self. Or another way of looking at it is to live keeping the instinct of self under control. Keep the instinct of self under control until it slowly fades away. If we deal with the instinct of self correctly, then slowly there will be more and more freedom from self. That's to live wisely, to live always doing one's duty, to live free of selfishness. So we're, we all have this instinct of self, and if we're careless, it will just grow into more and more ego and selfishness. But if we are wise, we can contain that instinct of self and then slowly get free of it, be, be above it. So even if there is still some self, keep it under control. Don't let it turn into selfishness. Some of you may feel that this is something new, that it's some kind of new life. But in fact, it's something tremendously old. This life that is free of atta, the life of the life beyond self, is incredibly old. It's so old that it doesn't have a beginning doesn't have an end. So if you want, you can say it's new. But it's, it's not something new that's just happened. It's eternally new. It's so old that it's always new. So maybe the best way of speaking, the most correct way of speaking, is to say that this is neither new nor old. If we see it most clearly, the life beyond self is neither new nor old.
even further than that comes the question should this even be called life is this life or is it not life this life that is neither new nor old should we even call it life isn't this being above life beyond life free of life but of course this is something that most people don't want to understand they don't want to pay attention to this being beyond life above life but that that frightens people so they're not interested to speak in a more easy to understand way we can say that the life that has no self the life beyond self is something terrifically lovely and desirable for the person who is intelligent the person who understands dhamma well will see this life as being very desirable on the other hand people who are foolish people who have no understanding of dhamma will see this life as ugly hateful and frightening they're so attached to self they're so stuck in the belief the feeling the thinking that life must be self that if we speak of not self being free of self it seems to them to be no life at all and so they hate this kind of life they hate the life of no self and unselfishness they're afraid of it they want to just cling to the life of self of selfishness of hunger but there is this this kind of life which is the most lovely and beautiful for those who understand dhamma people who are infatuated with and obsessed with the positive in this world the more obsessed they are with the positive the more they hate the life of anatta the more we find satisfaction and pleasure the more we indulge in and are drunk on the positiveness in this world on the kinds of happiness that people find in this world the more we will cling to the life of self the life of ego and the more we will hate the life of not self of anatta when there is no more positive then there isn't any negative either the positive and the negative are just about the same the negative comes from the positive when we don't get what we want when we don't get what we like what we take to be positive then that is negative and so when the positive disappears the negative disappears as well and when there's neither positive nor negative when there's no clinging to things in this way then life is free that is the life of not self
if you still despise or fear the life of anatta then you don't really understand dhamma if you still have any fear or hatred towards the life of not self then you're going to have to study dhamma a lot more until you lose interest in the life of positive and negative when you live lose interest in the life of infatuation obsession and hunger until then one needs to one hasn't really understood dhamma and one had better keep studying so this life which is beyond positive and negative this is the highest fruit the highest benefit which one can attain in life through understanding and practicing dhamma it can lead us to this life which is totally beyond positive and negative this is the life which is saved which is liberated the life of coolness of not self the person who is still deceived by and looking for the happiness and pleasure which comes from sex from materiality and from non-materiality is still a fool this is the person who is still stupid and therefore must suffer the dukkha the pain and the heaviness of this deception and infatuation they haven't yet seen beyond to the the highest level of life where one no longer clings to or seeks the happiness from sex materiality and non-materiality so we must study must investigate to see that sex and sensuality is hopeless that the happiness which it brings will always bite then we must investigate and study that the happiness that comes from wealth from possessions from material things is hopeless it will always bite and even the happiness that comes from reputation and fame and other non-material things this too is hopeless it will always bite only by studying that this the happiness and pleasure of sex materiality and non-materiality until seeing how hopeless they are how inherently painful and ugly they are this is the only way that we we'll, we will start to be interested in the joy of quenching the joy of where there is the joy of non-ego it's this last life this last way of living which is the highest level but we won't care about it until we have seen how hopeless it is to seek pleasure and happiness in sex materiality and non-materiality but if we begin to see the see that then we start to take an interest in the life which is beyond 
sex, materiality and non-materiality, the life of quenching, which is the highest life. This highest life, that of quench, on the level of quenching, of nirota, this then is the fruits of practicing dhamma correctly. If we are interested in it, then we will be truly interested in practicing dhamma according to, to dhamma. There is a term which is rather difficult to understand. If you understand it, then it will make things very clear. But if you misunderstand it, then you will find it something very hateful, something despicable. This, this term or phrase is the life which is above all concocting. The life which is beyond all concocting. This is the life which is beyond self. We're using the Thai word brung, bang. Brung is to season. When you, or to cook, when you cook food, you, you brung it, or when you make something, you brung. And bang is to kind of season or decorate, whether you decorate your face, your body, or something else. So this kind of cooking and decorating is brung bang. We can maybe translate it concocting, which comes from the Latin word to cook together cooking things up in order to get new things. It could be translated production. So the, the life which is above all of this concocting, all of this cooking and decorating, this is something, this is the life of not-self. This is when the mind has realized something or realize that so that the mind can never be concocted again. The mind can't be cooked, decorated, or seasoned by anything ever again. This is the life which is above all concocting. If you understand it, you'll, you'll fall in love with it. If you don't understand it, you'll hate it. The Pali word for this is sankata, sankata. The English translation is a little difficult as well as into other languages such as German or French. So why don't you think about it, investigate Sankata more and more until you find the best translation for yourself. The meaning of Sankata is kind of arrangement and then rearrangement and then rearrangement, a constant rearrangement and arrangement and rearrangement of things. This is what we mean by brungdang or by concocting, by sangata. First, the positive concocts and then the negative concocts and then even neutral concocts, constantly being rearranged by the positive, by the negative, by neutral. This is what we mean by sankata. 
Can you see how wearisome, how heavy, how hopeless it is? We don't even know what freedom is. We don't know what it is to be free of all the concocting, all the cooking and seasoning and rearranging. We think we know about political freedom or material freedom. But these kind of freedoms are freedoms in which there is still a lot of self, even if we're not conscious of it. There's still a lot of self, and so it's not yet free of dukkha. It's not yet free of the pain. It's not yet free of concocting. But real freedom is freedom from concocting where freedom from being arranged and rearranged over and over again. This is a life which is neither passive nor active. If we're still passive or active, we're being arranged and rearranged. If we're still positive or negative, the concocting is still going on, but the, the highest life is neither active nor passive, neither positive nor negative. It's just free. It's simply free of all that concocting. And so we've spoken of a bird's eye view, by which we mean to be way up high like a bird, so that we can have a broad perspective of things. And so from this bird's eye view, would you please Take a good look at what sexuality is like, what materiality is like, and what non-materiality is like. Take a good look at them. You may not be able to see nirota, the quenching, but you should be able to see kama, sex, rupa, materiality, and arupa, non-materiality. And then you'll be able to understand nirota as that which is the opposite of all this concocting, all the arranging and rearranging of sex, materiality, and non-materiality. Nirota is that which is freedom from that concocting, being above, being untouched, unmoved, unaffected by all that concocting. So please take a bird's eye view at these things. All we know is dukkha. When we experience dukkha, we feel it, and so we, we know it. But when there's no dukkha, we don't feel anything, and so we have no understanding of what it is to be free of dukkha. So all we want, all we look for is the happiness that we can get out of sex, material things, and non-material things. We're not all at all interested in quenching, in the ending of all that clinging after positive things. This is rather funny although it's also pitiful, that all we know is dukkha. 
we're not even interested in and so we're not even being interested in being free of dukkha because freedom from dukkha doesn't hit us over the head we don't bother paying any attention to it and so we have no interest in it all we're interested in is dukkha although we like to call it happiness but with our chasing after happiness what we get is dukkha try to understand just two words concocting and non-concocting one side is this concocting this cooking this constant rearranging in the other side there's no concocting no cooking no rearranging one kind of life is the life which is always concocted constantly being concocted another kind of life is the life of the arahant the life which has developed to the highest level the life where there isn't any concocting this is all you need to understand the life of concocting and the life of non-concocting if you study dhamma if you practice dhamma then you will start to understand these things please try to understand this concocting and non-concocting in the short amount of time that remains we'd like to make some understanding about the the results of non-concocting in the pali language this is called nibbana in thai we just call it nipan but in pali it's nibbana or if we give it its full name it's called nibbana datu the the natural elements of nibbana the natural essence of nibbana nibbana datu this is the fruit the result of non-concocting its basic meaning is cool the essence of nibbana is coolness the ordinary person doesn't understand the words sankata concocted and asankata unconcocted non-concocted the ordinary person is still tricked and deceived by positive and the negative positive things can concoct the ordinary person into love and lust negative things concoct the ordinary person into anger and hatred the ordinary person is said to be thick or in pali the term is bhutu jana thick ones or thick people they're said to be thick because there's something very thick in front of their eyes and so they can't see the thick ones can't see the concocting and so it's hopeless as far as the unconcocting goes because they're still so deceived by the positive and the negative by their attachments and defilements they're said to be thick ones or th- fixtures 
the thick ones don't even understand Nibbana at all. Let's take a look at Nibbana. The first level of Nibbana is that of the Arahant. The Arahant who thoroughly understands what it is to be concocted and what it is to be non-concocted. The Arahant thoroughly understanding concocting and non-concocting still knows what it is to be concocted or rearranged by the positive, to be concocted or rearranged by the negative knows this very well, but also because the Arahant knows even, also knows the unconcocted, knows this and appreciates what it is to be unconcocted, and therefore is, by appreciating this, truly appreciating it, the Arahant, this Arahant is able to not be concocted by things. Still knowing what it is to be concocted, this Arahant, because of appreciation for the non-concocted, is able to be unconcocted, is, un is able to avoid being rearranged by positive and negative. This is the first level of Nibbana Dhatu. The second level of Nibbanadhatu, which is the result of the highest insight, the highest understanding of insight, is seeing that the positive is just thus, negative is just thus. It's not this or that, both positive and negative are just thus are merely thusness. They're just like that. And seeing this, re truly realizing this, the Arahant is not at all, not in the least affected by positive and negative. Positive and negative don't exist for this Arahant. The first level, the first level there is still positive and negative but it doesn't affect, it can't rearrange or concoct that kind of arahant. But on the second level, there's no more positive and negative at all. There's absolutely no concocting at all. There's just non-concocting, just asankata. This is the second level of Nibbana Dhatu. Let's review this understanding a little bit. The first kind of Nibbana Dhatu, there is still positive and negative, but it can't concoct the mind. But there's still, positive, still experience of positive and negative, but it can't concoct the mind. The second kind of Nibbana Dhatu, there's no positive and negative, so there's no concocting at all. The first level 
There's positive and negative, but it can't concoct the mind. There's concocting, but it's not rearranging the mind. In the second kind, there's no concocting at all. There's no rearranging at all. So there are these two levels of Nibbana Dhatu. Now take a look at ourselves. Look at ourselves right here. All there is is concocting and rearranging all the time. Because we don't understand these things, things are being constantly concocted and rearranged, constantly cooked and stewed. And so there's no coolness, there's just heat. Let's take one more bird's eye view at this. First, there's the ordinary people, the fixtures, who are being constantly cooked up and rearranged. It's like they're put in a pot and salt and vinegar and sugar and all kinds of things are always being put in and stirred around and mixed up. This constantly being stirred and cooked up is the life of the butuchong. Putuchana, the thick ones. And then there's the life of the Arahant. The first level of Arahant, they're still positive and negative, right in front of the Arahant, right in the face, but that positive and negative can't cook up that Arahant. The, there's positive and negative, but it can't stir up the mind anymore. And then the highest level of Arahant, there's no more positive and negative left. There's nothing positive and negative at all. In short, there are, there are two things. There's the ordinary thick life that's being constantly stirred and cooked. And there's the life of Nibbana, in which there's no stirring, no cooking. Should we go through it again. This, this set is being cooked, rearranged, and concocted by the positive and negative all the time. This set has positive and negative right there, but isn't cooked or concocted by that positive and negative. And for this set, there's no positive and negative at all. There's no positive and negative value or meaning for the last. So a bird's eye view of the fruits of Dhamma practice are like this. This is the most correct, the best kind of understanding that we ought to try and understand, to have this full perspective on the results of Dhamma practice. So finally, thank you all for being good listeners. That's all for today. This talk and meeting is closed.